I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration and collaboration creates community and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck and this is Face to Face. Welcome to Face to Face, and uh, we've got another great interview planned here today with somebody I met about two and a half years ago, I think, in Washington, D.C., and her name's Jennifer Lentfer, and thanks for joining us today, Jennifer. My pleasure. She's um, she's a blogger, um, 
some, something I don't know a great deal about, and we're going to find out more about that today. She has a blog called How Matters, how-matters.org. You definitely need to check it out. And she's a pretty interesting woman. We hit it off at uh, Interaction in Washington uh, 2010, maybe, Jennifer, something like that. Yeah. 2010-11. She's uh, she is the editor of Oxfam America's Politics of Poverty blog. She's teaching at Georgetown this year. She sounds like she's got some pretty interesting things going on, and I'm hoping she's going to tell us a little bit about that. But she's here today to um, talk about a great deal of things, I think. But we're going to focus a little bit on why, I suppose. There's the philosophical edge. Why? How matters? And um, so maybe that's maybe that's a good way to start. But actually, you know what? I think what we should really lead in with Jennifer is you need to tell everyone uh, today what the name of your talk is going to be at this year's conference at Interaction. This year's conference at Interaction. Interaction is the consortium of international NGOs based here in the U.S. And my um, session title this year is going to be "Why Are Most Organizations' Blogs So Bad?" <laughs> and so, <laughs> so love the title. Yep. Um, so why don't why don't you why don't you right out of the gate why don't you tell us a little bit about that why why are they so bad? Well, some you know I'm doing a lot of thinking these days. I'm teaching international development communications at Georgetown this semester, as you mentioned, and so much of the narrative that's been pushed out into the world over the last sixty years of development is a very simple one, and that unfortunately doesn't serve us anymore. So so here was the storyline in the past. Here was a needy person. They have all these challenges. The organization comes in, da 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 da, and saves the day, right? And then everything is better. Well, people are keen and are are, are sort of tired of this narrative. They don't. It doesn't really generate uh, much interest. Obviously, when you have journalists also covering the problems with international aid and development, um, we're looking for something that's sort of much more genuine and authentic. And most organizations' blogs tend to be self-promotional uh, and have, you know, always this back-of-the-mind, risk-averse sort of way of communicating. Um, so that's what we're going to talk about. And, and, and really it's about making sure we preserve our, ins- our, our institutional values but don't quash our personal voice and our personal perspectives in the midst of this. So are you saying that that we in the nonprofit community for the last 40 years have not been genuine and authentic? Have we been telling, you know, sort of half-truths? Or have we just been flat-out lying? I, I don't think anyone is so ill-intentioned that they have been trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. But I, I think that as we've evolved in this industry, which is still quite young, if you think about it, yeah, it's true, it's true. Um, part of what we're trying to do is raise funds. And that desire and push to and dependency that is any organization <laughs> upon its donors means that we we just want to make sure that we are building trust and legitimacy and credibility and we're afraid sometimes that being wishy-washy or not presenting this perfect uh, view of success will actually cause people to lose faith in us um I think that that is a really antiquated way of looking at it. 
I remember when I was first introduced to to sort of RBM and the whole log frame process of developing this chart and this impact statement and a series of activities and all these outcomes and oh boy aren't isn't it wonderful and aren't they causally connected and so on and as I started to get deeper into the field and saw how these were used more and more often um, you know one of the things our prof said was is this is not a box filling in exercise and yet that's exactly what it was and that's exactly what it became so it wasn't about a, a dynamic document it wasn't about a process it wasn't about a relationship it wasn't ongoing it wasn't changing it really was static I mean I'm sounding really deeply cynical here but I think there's a lot of truth to it and the really the shame of it all is because I think I'm picking up here on what you said about this truth and authenticity everyone was afraid to actually tell the donor you know like a USAID or a CETA at the time what really happened mm -hmm. and there were these opportunities to learn these huge lessons but oh holy smokes I better not tell them what actually happened because if I do that we won't get money next time around right and you know what's fascinating for me is that um, public monies have a different pressure right so CETA and USAID ultimately have to be accountable to um, Congress or Parliament right and it's really the, the Americans or the Canadians that paid the tax dollars who are themselves not very well informed sometimes about the, the complicated aspect of this work as you described it. Um, we are dealing with incredibly complex issues and really old issues that are really entrenched in, um, in structural injustice and we're talking about social change. And if you actually look at all of the, if you, I, know it's, I know it's crazy, but sometimes it's good to look at history. <laughs> tells us that um, movements of people coming together to demand change is usually what makes change happen uh, on a societal level. Um, and unfortunately, the, the aid industry, the nonprofit industry, has, has really been dependent, I think, on this notion of if we technicalize this work and we do it well and we figure out what works and what doesn't work and, da -da 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 -da, and we bring our whole minds to the table that we can solve these issues. And I don't want anyone to leave their minds, but I also want people to bring their hearts. And I want people to bring sort of their intuition and their and their, their skills that are very about very much about social intelligence, that are very much about listening, that are are this set of what are people often refer to as soft skills, which I think, you know, anybody can learn how to write a logical framework. It's it's a it's a great tool, right? I, I used to train people all day long about these things. Um, you know, it's great to have a theory of change. It's great to know that we're attempting to do this so that this will happen and then this will happen. That's important. We we all need to understand what the direction is. But what happens when? Okay, let's say we um, we're setting up a new initiative to introduce new, more um, drought-resistant seeds in this area. Well, now with climate change, this area isn't having drought issues the same way. Now they have this other problem, right? And so this is the dynamic nature of the world in which we live. So to think that we can control outcomes and that, you know, it's, it's a little bit, um, I don't know, I don't know the word for it, but it, it's a little, it, there's lots of quotes about it. if you think you can control your world, you will soon be. Sure. <laughs> knocked off the horse and um, 
So I, I think that's what we sort of need to start bringing to the table is our whole selves um, and really be well-informed um, of all aspects of, of what it is to be human life. Tell me, tell me a little bit about, um, and I think there's a couple questions here, the distinction between, say, qualitative outcomes and, or sorry, qualitative indicators and quantitative indicators. There seems to be this focus right now, especially from certain donors, on quantitative analysis. So, well, we drilled so many wells and we affected this many children and we got to this many village leaders and we, you know, increased our advocacy by 60% in this particular community. And these are all wonderful things and they're all very important. But... Uh, is is every outcome uh, are are all outcomes quanti- quantifiable? Are they? And so I think I think there's a couple of questions there. They're not. Um, everyone cares about results, and I don't care what your orientation is. Maybe you are a total policy wonk who has to make recommendations five, ten layers from where actually people are doing any real work, um, which is my this is my scourge in <laughs> Washington D.C. Um, my burden to bear. But the point of the matter is, if you come from that very quantitative, quantitative side of things, if you come from what is considered the squishy, subjective side of things, um, we all care about results. And that is actually the one thing that can bind us together. But there are very differing ideas about what will bring the change. Um, and there's uh, now there's a really interesting debate happening due to Bill Easterly's new book, The Tyranny of Experts, in which he is trying as an economist to say, you know, just to sort of revive the things that Martia Sen did, said about a decade ago, which is this human rights thing, it's actually pretty key. Because if you don't have institutions responding to people's um, inherent rights, we're not going to be making any economic progress either. And there's been a lot of pushback because there are still, I think, old notions of what progress means. And is it only measured in economic well-being? A lot of people would say no. Um, You can have a a quality of life that is improved, um, which may or may not have money. And we know that in developed countries, we've got all kinds of money. When there's inequality, it takes away from all of us, and it actually undermines our development. And that's what's happening in our rich countries as well now. So... Um, it's, it's not a simple road. That's 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 the point, and I think that's what I keep coming back to in terms of how we communicate this work. Yes, focus on results. We all want to know how far things went. Um, we all care about the so what of this, but oftentimes the numbers we're having to generate, which is just at a uh, a reached level, not an impacted level, which is much harder to get at. Um, and even if we had all the resources in the world and all the time. Measuring impact is difficult. It just really is because we're talking about problems that have a long time frame in terms of change. Well, I've often I've often thought that the, the the you know trying to measure impact on a one or a three or a five year project is is kind of absurd. And if you haven't actually been on the ground, you wouldn't sort of know that. And that kind of sounds condescending in a way, I suppose, but it's really true. So you want to talk about life change. You want to talk about those, uh, you know, that social or that emotional intelligence or the ability to actually make a difference in the long run. I mean, these these are years. This is going to take, I mean, how long does it take to raise children? How long does it take to learn a language? You know, how long does it to learn, you know, learn how to, you know, 
do mathematics well or play the piano. I mean, we're talking about some of these things. And and uh, I think it's kind of ludicrous. And I've, I was talking to somebody recently, and I'm just going to toss this out there, but I wonder if there's, you know, this whole um, um, results-based management. I mean, I, I wonder if we need to start talking about efficacy analysis. As weird as that might sound, it might just be a, a, a fancy way of saying, well, aren't we just talking about impact analysis? But I think really, uh, for me anyway, it's not about an NGO and how much money they spend or how, how expensive they are administratively. It's how effective they're actually being. Right, I, I think, um, and and yet it seems donors today the first question out of their mouth is, well, what's their administrative uh, uh, fee? Is it eighty twenty? Is it ninety ten? Is it ninety five five? And uh, valid question, but I think it's maybe the wrong starting question. It is, um, and there's been a lot of really smart people who've written really great analyses of why administrative costs as a as a mark or a measure of organizational strength. Is, is often really the wrong thing to be looking at. So let's say you are um, an organization that distributes mosquito bed nets, which you know something about, David. I do. Uh, <laughs> uh, it is easy to measure how many nets are distributed. It is difficult to measure that how, how long does it take once a child is started showing the signs of malaria for them to get to the hospital. And it's harder to measure whether once they get to the hospital, are there the right drugs? And is the nurse actually able to, is showing up and seen? These are seemingly simple things, but it just shows how one issue is always connected to these greater systems. Um, I, I like, I, 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 I do think it's, organ what I like about um, the term that you presented um, is that it, it, it could incorporate measures of things that we currently don't include. Uh, think of as as part of impact, and it's the quality of our partnerships. Um, a lot of aid and development and nonprofit work, even domestically, is really about uh, organizational partnerships. And uh, you know, a concept that I come back to quite a lot, especially in the development space, is organizational sovereignty. Hmm. So uh, instead of organizations looking at local nonprofits in the developing world as implementers of their projects, how do international organizations position themselves so that they are building these local nonprofits to be sustainable entities in their own right and focused on their own priorities and building up their ability to raise and utilize resources from inside their own country? Uh, these are big long-term questions, but I, I could see that if we are looking at, at these issues in a much more broader way, that that could be part of what we look at as success. Do you, I mean, I don't know if you've read Partners in Development by Lester Pearson, but it's a it's actually a study that done in the '60s, late '60s, that um, Robert McNamara. Um, uh, uh, asked for and so this group comes together and Pearson's a bit of a hero here in Canada uh, we've got an airport named after him so he must be um, anyway he talks a great deal and coming out of the commission even in the first few pages of the report he's talking like you, you could read the introduction of this book and think it was written yesterday right. and I wonder to some degree if development professionals for the most part have always known these things to be true and yet somehow the larger NGOs or the, you know, uh, ideological sort of structures, political structures that we all live within, or maybe the 
pre-RBM-like donors have actually sort of shaped and molded us almost unwillingly to say, well, this is really what it's all about, when we really know deep down inside that it really never was about that in the first place. Does that make any sense? No, absolutely. You're actually speaking to why I started my blog, How Matters, because I had been living and working in, in Southern Africa, and I was frustrated. It was really hard to sort of stick with some of the hypocrisies within the aid industry. It was difficult to kind of, when we were having to just focus so much on donor reports and donor reporting, and are we getting the next tranche of funds, and are we writing the right proposal? And and to me, I was very much, um, having come from the middle of the U.S. and from a town of 300 people, um, I thought, wow, if people marched into my hometown and told us what to do, we would ship them right back up. Or we would just ignore them, be very friendly, and then send them on their way. Um, right, <laughs> and right. just go about with our lives, which is what sort of happens in development. Um, and I, I just really thought, you know, we've got to keep people at the center. We have to get back to why we're doing this. And if you know, and one of my other favorite blogs is whydev.org, why and how. We're going to be friends, obviously. But they, they're they looking at these why questions. I'm looking at the how questions that follow, which are, you know, for me, it's really about how do we treat people while we try to help them is huge. Um, a study that came out last year um, from an organization in Boston, it was called Time to Listen. Um, listening to the, basically, they had interviews with over 6,000 people on the receiving end of aid. And what they told us was not surprising to anyone. And yet, as you're saying, it could have been written 30 years ago. I hope it can't be written in 10 years. Um, But there's just so many institutional barriers and personal barriers, frankly, when it comes to listening. Um, The pressure, the organizational pressures, which you talked about, but also this burden we carry, I think, is those people who want to help in the world and want to see good done in the world. Um, we either come to this through guilt, um, sadness, or service, <laughs> right? And those three things often can exist even in one moment. Uh, and, and we have to always bring a level of self-awareness that allows us to discern, okay, what's happening right now? Is there some blockage? Why, why, why aren't we connecting, <laughs> right? Why are we having two different conversations? Is it because there's a power indifference here? You know, these are things you're constantly navigating, even as you do domestic nonprofit work. Um, and I don't think there's a lot of thought given to that, unfortunately. That's not something we value in, in the same way that we value results and evidence. But to me, sometimes the the biggest uh, stumbling block of many do-gooder initiatives comes in this lack of quality relationships uh, upon which all of this is based. So it's so, so for you, it is about uh, it's about people and it's about story. Mm. And story. and for you, actually, how matters about telling their stories? Yeah, um, I, I you know I tell some stories story because I think in any any way that we relate to this has to start with ourselves and um, <clears throat> I, I've been really honest on my blog I've, I've talked about the time in Malawi that I was a hotshot monitoring and evaluation advisor and I was told you know this this local partner 
they we have some trouble with them. Go in and do this evaluation. So I march in. There's no baseline, of course. So we decide to go totally qualitative. If there's nothing to compare, we're just going to have to do our best and we're going to have to listen to communities. And so all week we did focus groups and interviews. I put all the results on the wall, on the flip chart paper, in all, covered the offices so that nothing was a surprise. Went back to the long way, wrote my report. But with my sort of scathing viewpoint now, <laughs> um, none of it necessarily, but none of it also telling a full picture. And I got called out. I was called out not for being inaccurate or the wrong findings, but the way in which I conveyed this, this, these issues wasn't a way that built partnership. Huh. It actually shut down dialogue. Um, at the same point, you know, now that I'm older, I think sometimes you need those crisis moments to move forward as well. And so that's, that's part of being experienced and getting years under your belt and understanding what's the right moment to push and what's the right moment not to. Um, but I think ultimately what I learned from that experience is that what you look for is what you see. So if you're looking for organizations to be inept, they will be. If you're looking for organizations that are powerful, you'll see power. Um, I'd rather encourage in the world than criticize. My, my natural inclination as a human being is to criticize um, for various reasons. And I, that doesn't always serve us. And honestly, the world has plenty of naysayers. It actually takes more energy and, and, and vision and it takes more of ourselves to look for where there's possibility um, and where there's a chance for things to change. Otherwise, we're just perpetuating what's what's wrong. And you, don't, you don't you don't sound negative at all. You sound you sound like this crazy platonic idealist to me. <laughs> I'd rather be called that any day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> so let me go back a couple min- a couple uh, comments ago. You you talked. Uh, it sounded to me like you were talking about poverty in a way that I I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. And so one of the things I've challenged some of my students on and and uh, some of the my co- colleagues and so on is we need to come up with another word for poverty. Uh, and that's not just because I'm a philosopher and I like to play with words, but it's because I really don't think it's uh, holistic. I don't think it's all-encompassing. I think we immediately, and I think you you alluded to this, we immediately, um, you know, we 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 fall back on this notion that it's purely economic. It's it's all about money. It's all about uh, uh, be you know having having the cash to invest in A, B, C, or D. When in fact poverty is way more nuanced than that and way more complicated. And I've told this story dozens of times of how one of my former professors was was in Papua New Guinea and and was there working on some sort of a project. And essentially, the short story is that he was challenged by a local village leader, you know, finger in the face. How dare you say I'm poor? And, you know, I've got a wonderful family life. I have a rich spiritual life. I live in the, you know, I swim in the ocean every day and eat fresh fish. You know what I mean? Like the, the story right. goes on and, and you live over there and I live here. I'm not poor. What are you talking about? So how do we, how do we get there? Yeah. Well, I think you speak to something that is, comes back to our, our original conversation that started this, which was um, our lexicon for talking about global development 
it's just so limited. It, it's very, it, it doesn't really contain all of the notions that we have to think about. Um, and, and because I have to edit jargon-laden stuff all day long and try to break it down um, and, and have it be explained in a way, you know, we really do rely on these very technical words like capacity building, even rights-based management or a log frame. These are things that if I am uh, Joe Schmo and I do care about the world, I- I'm not someone who just wants me and my own to get mine. Um, I have compassion. I have a lot of heart. But uh, what I'm hearing is it doesn't make sense to me <laughs> about how things happen. Um, I'm going to turn off. And when we, when we also keep pulling these same levers, which is the guilt and the sadness, right? Um, when we also find that in terms of fundraising, and organizations do need to know this, that, that doesn't, that's not a sustainable donor. So when someone sees sort of the poverty porn and they, um, they hand over their $5, it's going to be really hard to have them come back. Um, so that's, we need well, that's, to, that's guilt money at that point, that's isn't it? Guilt money. And, and, and so, you know, one of the, the questions we think about at my organization quite a lot is how do we get in, people excited about change at the same time root them in, 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 in sort of the structural injustices that are happening um, and portray people, portray the people we are intending to help as whole human beings, whether they... You know, as, as, as the man in Papua New Guinea said, whether they swim in the ocean or whether they live under a brick roof, it doesn't matter. You know, it's, we all have different things that are our gifts. We have different resources available to us. Um, and, you know, we've known for decades now in international development that we have to start with assets first. Um, but that's not happening still. And I, and, and I think hopefully that's what this report, Time to Listen, really shined a light on, which was how important that is and how much people really want that. Tell me what you mean by, you know, starting with assets, because I think for a lot of listeners, they, um, what, you know, what, what, what does that mean exactly? Yeah. Um, for me, that no one starts with nothing. And while they might not have money in the wallet, they have ideas, they have energy, they have time, they have connections. They have knowledge that um, an organization coming into the mix does not. So what happens is money rules the power relationship. But if, if any good develop, global development practitioner knows that you really have to start from there and, and really listen and figure out what resources you can leverage um, or build upon more so, um, and because if you don't have a group of people coming together and saying, here's what we could do before you put in your resources, now your resources don't have the same value. There's not as m- People are not invested in the same way. Um, we talk a lot about community and country ownership um, in my job. But ultimately, that means who's deciding how resources get spent and used? That's the question we need to continue to ask ourselves. Um, that autonomy is where we should be aiming, um, but fundraising gets in our way a lot of the time. Seems, seems to be that fundraising gets in the way all the time. I mean, that's a crazy, sweeping generalization, but it's it's 
God, there's so much truth to it. I was, I had a meeting today with somebody from from a large organization in Toronto, and we were talking about this whole notion of par- partnership. And wouldn't it be wonderful, you know, if some of the bigger uh, nonprofits, the the UNICEFs and the World Visions and the Plans of the World, could come alongside the smaller mom and pop kind of shops that are really struggling right now for not only actually good people, but also uh, you know donor dollars. But you know, I, I don't. You know, we hear a lot of talk about it. Mm-hmm. But I don't actually see it happening, and maybe it's starting to happen. I don't know. Uh, maybe we're on the the edge of a kind of the next twenty years. Let's hope that's the case. But I don't know. I uh, depending on the day you ask me, I can be I can be pretty negative about this whole partnership thing. Yes, and being the optimistic idealist uh, that I am, uh, which you referred to earlier, that's I, right. <laughs> part of what I love to do and what I I try to do is to keep my my eyes open for organizations that are doing things differently. And what's wonderful is that there are a host of organizations sort of coming on the scene that that understand also that donors want a direct, a more direct connection to those they're um, trying to help. So people, you know, are less and less tolerant of um, listening about development from plan. They actually want to know what people on the ground think of. that. This is the great democratization of aid that is occurring because... We are more globalized than ever before. We have more ability to connect with people all around the world. Um, and so who's telling the story is starting to matter in a really significant way. Um, but, you know, I mean, I just, I can mention a few off the top of my head. Engineers Without Borders Canada, you know, total respect in the industry because they're willing to speak about their failures. This is revolutionary. What is it? Is it failure.org? Um... It's something like that, isn't it? There is a failure, uh, and I honestly I can't tell you off the top of my head. But the, every year they publish a, uh, a failure report, which is their annual report, and they talk about the struggles they had and how they tried to overcome them. And I think that's what people are more interested in these days. They want to see what the learning is. It's not that you had a challenge. Of course, you're going to have a challenge. This is challenging work. But how did you adapt? How did you? sort of turn the corner so that you don't make that same mistake again. That's, you know, really the mantra that needs to start to exist for monitoring and evaluation and results and all and evidence and impact, all of these key words. Really, I think what we need to be talking about much more is learning and adaptation. Is it, is it fair to say, Jennifer, that, that knowledge within the international development field is not just reduced or redacted to numbers? Can you talk about can you talk about can you really talk about qualitative knowledge in a relational sense in a spiritual sense in an emotional sense in a holistic sense and say to donors hang on a second here yes we did a b and c and there there you got all the numbers you want you want to talk about that at your party that's great but if you really want to know what's going on around read how matters i mean that's kind of corny in a way but it's it's about the story that you're going to you know that that there's a connection. There's a soulful connection point. It seems to me, and I don't think. I mean, I'm pretty sure you'd agree with me, but I don't. I don't hear that kind of stuff often enough. We don't. We don't. Um, but there is more and more demand for it, and I think there's a lot of uh, very interesting um, psychological studies coming out too about how people make decisions, and and the fact that people actually look for information to back up what they already think. We, pre- we have this fallacy that happens, right, of objectivity, and that I make decisions based on the information before us. 
No, I look for information to confirm what I thought I was sort of thinking already. Which is bad. Which is bad science, basically. It's, yeah, um, and that's it becomes really interesting and important for us as as people who want to influence those with resources, whether that be for advocacy or fundraising or what have you. Um, another mantra I would like to offer up is no stories without data and no data without stories, so that it's you're never alienating the people who have different orientations to this work because they are going to want the hard data. That's part of um, the way they think about this, but the way they feel about this actually really matters too. And that comes through the story. And I always, you know, I I work with people who work um, on the Hill in in Washington, DC. I, you know what, Jennifer, I wish I could say that I work on the Hill. I just love that expression. It's very interesting. (laughs) It just sounds like I'm a cast member in, in, in West Wing or something, you know? <laughs> People do talk about pastors sometimes. Here. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, let's say, you know, you, you definitely offer the numbers that people need and want. But what they remember coming out of that meeting is the story you told about the entrepreneur in Nigeria who is, you know, doing this thing that's sort of great. Right? People actually want to connect with stories, um, not necessarily of success, but of overcoming. And I, I think that that's our, a real human um, need. We all want to be inspired. We all want to understand what it takes to be better, um, whatever your definition of that is. Um, and that's what stories can do in a really interesting way. So, um it's difficult, though. And, and just last night in my class, we were talking about the future of international organizations and the fact that, you know, all, all semester long, I drilled in, you know, genuine and authentic, authentic storytelling is what we're aiming for. And we want to have people understand some of the deeper concepts behind global development. Um, but somebody asked a really, really practical question, which was, okay, so if I'm on a beat or I'm trying to write something with my organization and I know that the story that they want to tell is not necessarily the story that probably needs to be told but I'm on this deadline what do I do and the answer was write both stories we're not quite there yet we are in a, in a period of great transition in terms of changing over the business models of how these organizations work um, and, and what's great is you have organizations like Global Giving and Kiva and Give Directly, who are also offering different ways of thinking about this, um, and are pushing the industry really, really quickly. The beautiful, the beautiful, the beautiful thing, thing about, about Kiva, I Kiva, think, is, I think is, is for me that they've they've humanized uh, uh, development or projects in development in a way that others haven't been able to. That maybe child sponsorship did at one time, and I think does still for many people with the photo on the refrigerator and the hope is it goes deeper than that, of course. Um, but this idea that you can see this woman who's going to be a butcher somewhere in Cambodia uh, and watch her make her money. I remember a class I taught. We had, a, I think it was about a two, two and a half hour class, and we watched uh, somebody's loan grow 
within that two and a half hour uh, uh, window and we actually made a donation in class up on the screen you know a few bucks five bucks or whatever I made a donation just to show them my students and then over time we I don't know two hundred dollars was donated or something I mean that's pretty that's 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 a uh, I mean talk about a, a way of humanizing the technology you know uh, um, I think it's pretty wonderful I got to tell you about a, a guy that I've met uh, soon Rotana uh, a guy that I've met in uh, my travels uh, through Cambodia. Uh, I met him 10 years ago. And the short story is that he fought uh, with the Khmer Rouge. He fought in the Cambodian army. And it's basically the story is reduced to he fought for whoever was able to feed him. So it had no, there was no ideological sort of edge here. It was just where can I get food? I'll fire weapons for you accordingly. Well, I met him 10 years ago in 2003. And there I am in 2013. Uh, wandering through the Siem Reap War Museum, seeing, wondering, gee, I wonder if this guy's still there. I, I didn't know his name. Um, anyway, I end up seeing him sitting down talking to a, a crazy Australian guy uh, that I ultimately met, and I walked up and I saw him smile, and I knew it was him. You have no idea who I am, but I remember you. And you and I sat right over there on that log, and we talked about landmines, and he's, he, he lost a, a leg to a landmine. You were letting me feel little bits of metal in your arm. And, and as I s- told him more about how I had been telling this story for the last 10 years, this huge smile appears on his face. He gets up, he gives me a hug, which is just so not done in Cambodian culture. It's just really not done. And and we hit it off. And so I I got him on uh, film. I got him on tape. We've come back since to uh, to to videotape some interviews and 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 some um, some different footage with him. And I, I'm hoping to now tell his story. I want to do a little bit of a documentary on him. But what I find fascinating about it, Jennifer, is here's a guy that for the past ten years has done nothing else but tell his story. And he to anyone who will listen. To anyone who will listen, he's clearly suffering from some, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. Still, some 30 years later, he wears his his military outfit. That's part of his costume at the museum, but it's also partially him. And he's really angry, but he's angry that people aren't taking him seriously enough, probably about this whole idea that war is crazy. And so every day he comes with a couple cans of beer and a pack of cigarettes, and he wanders around with people and tells them about this crazy war that happened 30 years ago. I mean, that's amazing to me, you know, and he's making a little bit of money doing this. He has a few possessions and a bed and a Buddhist uh, little shrine, and that's about it. That's it. But he wants others to to buy in. And who knows what kind of impact this guy's having. Never going to be able to measure that. Never. <laughs> anyway, I just I had to share that with you. I hope I hope in some way you I are. I will watch that. Let's get that going. <laughs> yeah, let's get that film made. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And 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 I think that's what is so fascinating for me is that every every person you meet has part of the story. Well, that's exactly um, the point. Of right? global development and and um, we do want to hear from more people about this because this is. This is actually something that does affect all of us. And it's very natural for every parent to want their child to have a better life. That's what we're talking about. We're not necessarily talking about economic indicators or even human rights indicators. It's it's this bigger notion of who we are as people, how we connect, what our future looks like. Um, And and the moment you can kind of tap into someone's hopes and aspirations in, in a less cheesy way you really start to understand um people's struggles um 
you're able to empathize more. You're able to then create programs that actually are responsive to what people's needs are. With and those needs change as as humans um, and as families change. Um, so 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 very top down. You know, big programs actually are needed. You need a health system to work, right? So it's never about you know, because I, I, I love small grants, and that's always been kind of my thing. Um, and, and people always say, well, that's not the whole story. I said, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's got to be interventions and people thinking about how these different levels, if you will, are connected. And, um, but what happens is that those sort of day-to-day experiences of people are, are just not part of the discussions in the way they should be. So, I'm all, you know, as much as I love stories, I think the power of convening and making those stories heard and accessible in ways that can be heard by lots of different people is actually a skill set um, that I'm trying to build at my class in Georgetown. But in general, I think development practitioners are going to need to know how to communicate what we do in a much more complex and accessible at the same time way, which is a huge challenge. But I, you know, I have a master's of development. We didn't talk about communications Ever, but to me, at this point, at where we are um, as an industry, uh, if that's not part of your toolbox, you're in trouble. Um, that because that is essentially we need to be external facing. We need to think about um, how we portray ourselves, but more importantly, how do we portray the people that we want to be in solidarity with? It's a great, it's a great, it's a great way, to, great wrap way to wrap up the podcast. The podcast I do want to ask you one more thing, thing that you talked about, about, if that's okay. okay. Sure. You talked you about, talked about the, the great transition. transition. Sounds like a novel that you're coming out with in the near future. Um, it's what, a really boring what, one. That's right. Is the great transition in development, or is that is that about listening? Is that about better storytelling? Is that about a, a, a lesser arrogance? Um, more, uh, more national leaders rising up, uh, a truer definition of what capacity building is all about, you know, and actually acknowledging and affirming assets, you know, as you talked about earlier in, in others. Is that what we're talking about here? I, I think it's absolutely part of what you just described. I, I think that that's what has to happen simultaneously as now we also see transparency coming on and open data. And so if you've got also systems that are starting to have to respond to people um, and institutions that are having to respond to people next to what you just said, now we're cooking with gas. Now we are talking about people um, able to influence and, and, and bring to bear um, what they think, see their future together with the, those in power. Um, and a lot of the criticism oftentimes for international um, organizations or entities is that you guys come in and you muck up the relationship between the government and its citizens. Did you say muck? Muck. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just wondering. Yeah. You insert yourselves and you you really disrupt what is ultimately about uh, that, that sort of fundamental relationship. Uh, I, I think as we go forward, we're going to be much more in tune with how to support that relationship rather than, than interfere. Um, and that will come with more transparency, more accessibility, um, and also what you said, just shutting up a lot more and listening. 
Uh, Jennifer Lentfer has been our guest today. She's been called one of a hundred women to follow on Twitter by Foreign Policy Magazine, and she often spends time on the Hill. <laughs> I just had to say that. <laughs> Thanks so much for, for hanging out with us today. I, I You know, my line has become, there's so much more than going on than meets the eye. You know, we barely scratched the surface on this one, but wow thanks thanks a lot for joining us today jennifer thanks for having me it was a great conversation such a pleasure